0: The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord be seated. All right, good morning again. Today is uh, an exciting day. We're starting a a new series, or perhaps returning to an old series. You might recall at the beginning of the year that we were preaching through Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and we called that series The Reason Why, because we believe in Genesis 1 through 3, you can discover the reason why, good or bad, for almost everything that exists in the world today. We saw that God originally created the the, uh, heavens and the earth, and he declared them very good. That he made man his masterpiece. That he placed us in Eden, a place of, of, of perfection, where we were able to enjoy God's presence, where work was satisfying, where relationships were real and rich. And he gave us that with only one rule, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we also saw that tragically through the deception and the complicity uh, of, our, of our first parents, the fruit that was forbidden, uh, we took after the uh, snake uh, deceived us. And we took that fruit and instantly our, our innocence and our enjoyment of the presence of God was torn. We were aware that we were naked and we hid from God. And because God's image bearers instead became uh, people who rebelled and defied God's command, took what was very good and made it not good, God ruled and brought judgment upon us, and we were expelled from the garden. What we're going to be looking at in this series, which we are calling Far and Away, is what happens after the fall. We are, we are going to look at Genesis chapters 4 through 11 and see the, the immediate and tragic consequences of the fall. This story is not just an ancient story. It is a story of us. It is a story of humanity. We are descendants of what we read in Genesis 4 through 11, but also because of the fall, we are experiencers of what we will be looking at in these following chapters. What we are looking at today is, is the beginning of, of a new chapter in the story of the Bible. I always like to tell uh, the new members class that there's a very easy way to divide up your scriptures into four acts. And it, it works like this. to so take the very first page of your Bible and recognize that that's act number one. That's creation. God created everything very good, and it was pleasing in his sight. And then you take page number two, and that's the fall. That is where Adam and Eve rebelled and uh, uh, brought all of the disaster upon us. And then you take the next uh, section of scripture, which is big. And that's called redemption. Everything from The middle of Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 20 is what we call redemption. And then the very last uh, section of our Bible we call consummation. So the four acts of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Today, we turn the page from fall to redemption. Today's passage is where redemption begins, and we see it happening in the very final scene of Eden. We see in this final scene the great consequences of sin, but also God's determination to save. Here, at the very close of Eden, the main plot of the Bible begins, the story of redemption. That's important for all of us to recognize. What happens here in this passage is something that relates directly to us. We are now beginning the story that we are all in one way or another in the middle of. Because we are also in the story of redemption as we trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that story that we have been joined to in the church through the gospel is the story that begins right here. And so we need to recognize as we look at these first uh, few verses, these last few verses in Genesis 3, what are the, 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 the large trajectories of the story of redemption? It's relevant to us because it explains how we all collectively got here. And it's relevant to us all, also individually because the story that God works of redemption on the broad scale of history is uh, also the story of redemption that he is working in each and every one of our lives. So what we see him do in this passage, we relate to directly, and we can hope in directly. I hope as we go through this message today that you will be uh, given clarity, on why the story of redemption is the most important story, why it is the main plot, why redemption is the the primary concern of Scripture and should be your primary concern. And I also hope that as it gives us clarity about our situation, that it also gives clarity regarding the hope that God intends for you to have, the hope that He has provided this world for redemption. This is like the beginning of a great story. It is the beginning of a great story, the greatest story, the story of redemption. So as we look at this passage, we are going to see how redemption begins. We're going to look at that beginning through three headings. First, we're going to see that redemption begins with the reality of sin. Redemption begins with the reality of sin. I want us to look again at verses 23 and 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Redemption begins here with the reality of sin. I want us to see three things about the reality of sin, three um, uh, powers of separation that that sin possesses that sets up the story of redemption. First, we are going to see that sin places us far from God. Sin places us far from God. From God. Now, I, as I know that I am speaking to a group of sinners, myself included, we are all aware of this aspect of sin. Sin always creates distance. When you do something in a relationship where you break trust, when you uh, 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 violate the, the rules of an arrangement, When you hurt someone's feelings with with callousness or anger or acting out in, in selfish ways, you create separation. You create a breach. That breach is just the necessary, inevitable consequence of breaking the way things are supposed to be. And that is what sin is doing. Sin always creates distance. And here we see that shown to us clearly. In verse 22, Adam and Eve are sent out of the Garden of Eden. And then in verse 23, the word is actually stronger. It says they were driven out. The picture here is is, is pronounced. They were expelled because of their sin from the Garden of Eden. It is as if God turned into the most fearsome bouncer at at the nightclub, and Adam and Eve meet and are just picked up by by their, their scruff and thrown, hurled out of the garden because of their sin. That's so tragic. This is Adam and Eve. They were created in the image of God. They were created to be in God's presence. They were created to have a loving relationship without end in a place that was called bliss. Contrast these verbs being sent out and driven out with what we are told in in chapter 2 when the Garden of Eden is created. There we are told that God set the man in the garden. I I, I picture being set in the garden like like God has has made this beautiful place, this serene and wonderful environment for this uh, creation which he has stamped with his own image that he is full of pride on and he has set him down so that he could admire how perfect the man is for the environment and the environment is for man to look at the whole thing and, and be delighted. Like man is placed in this beautiful garden as the master stroke, as the, the missing piece that makes it all perfect and beautiful. That's what God intended. And here with the rebellion, with the sin, that one who was the master stroke, the perfection of the garden is thrown out. Why? Why? Because sin is a defiling, corrupting, infecting presence. It is pollution. It cannot be allowed to be in the midst of the pristine and the pure without it defiling all that is also pristine and pure. When we think about God sending out and driving out, there is another verse in Scripture that I think gets at exactly the violence that is going on in the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. And it it elevates the tragedy. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 28, God has promised the Israelites that they will get to go back and be in the promised land, the special land of Israel. And he says this, warning them not to bring in their disobedience, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. The idea of being expelled in this verse is, it's like vomit that Overwhelming, contracting, retching, violent, hurried expulsion. Because that is what sin brought into the kingdom a virus that turned the stomach of God. And his response was to throw it out as violently as vomiting. Sinfulness makes all that is good wretch until it is out. And so sin has placed Adam and Eve far from God, expelled them out of the Garden of Eden. But second, we see that sin points us away from God. Sin doesn't just create distance. Sin also creates hostility. The very first thing that Adam and Eve did once they had eaten of the forbidden fruit was hide from the presence of the Lord. No longer was the Lord walking in the midst of the garden a delightful thought. Bumping into God like like a neighbor was not an exciting, warm, comforting thought. Instead, God represents a danger to them, and they hide And we all know that when when sin enters into relationships, not only does it create separation, but it creates sides, right? We take sides in these conflicts. We want to surround people with those who will say, oh, yeah, you hold your ground, you stick firm. It's their fault, and the blame game happens. And so we have conflict that is severe and entrenched. So Adam and Eve, their first response to sin was to hide from the presence of the Lord. But as we look specifically at verses 20 to 24, I want you to notice the cardinal direction that shows up the very first time in Scripture. We're told in verse 24 that they were thrown out of the east of Eden. Let me read it specifically. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword. I want us just to focus on the word east for a moment because the word east begins a theme that will ride through these first 11 chapters. You see, the entrance of Eden was on the east. You came from the east to come into the Garden of Eden. It apparently had one way in. The Garden of Eden is replicated in a sense in both the uh, tabernacle... And the temple, which made the east entrance the way in. And so everything that goes in goes west is essentially coming into the presence of the Lord. They are coming closer to the Lord. East is set up as, as the direction that is away from the Lord. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that there's a location for God. But I'm, I'm saying that in Scripture that these directions are given significance. Coming from the east is coming towards God. Going to the east is the the metaphor for going away from the presence of God. And as we go through these chapters, verses 4 through 11, we are going to see how east shows up. Listen, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, where we will meet Cain. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. Cain, getting away from the Lord, heads east. Genesis 11.2, the Tower of Babel, we are told, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So we see in several instances The movement eastward is a movement away from the presence of God. It is is to reveal to us that as sin takes our hearts, as sin takes uh, over us, that the reaction is to move away from the Lord, to distance ourselves from the Lord. So not only do we have a distance of separation that sin creates, It also creates in us an orientation that wants to go the opposite direction of God. We want to pick a path that's not going to bump into God. And so that all begins with Adam and Eve being sent out and facing east. You see, sin doesn't just expel. It's not like it just puts us out on the curb and we we stand at the curb and we, we have these puppy dog eyes saying, can't you let me back in? What sin does is it hardens the heart and it says, well, if I'm out, then I'm going that way. Sin doesn't just expel, it drives us to be as far as possible from God. We just finished Colossians, but chapter 1, verse 21, explains the sin condition of all of our hearts. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... Alienated, separated, hostile, pointed away at enmity—that is what, God, what what sin does. Sin places us far from God. It places us away from God. And third, we'll see: sin prevents our return to God. Sin prevents our return to God. Look again at the at the end of verse twenty four. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God doesn't only expel. He puts a do not return sign on the Garden of Eden. He puts a fierce, terrifying, angelic guard with a flaming sword to prevent anyone from from ever getting back in to the Garden of Eden. Sin prevents our return to God. And why is that? Because sin cannot exist in God's presence. God is infinitely pure, and sin is defilement. God is holy. He is light. And sin is darkness. Can you put light and dark together? No, if the darkness comes into the presence of the light, it is destroyed. It ceases to exist. And so God has prevented our return, sin has prevented our return into the Garden of Eden because sin cannot exist in God's presence. God is holy, and there is nothing sinful that can exist in his midst. The cherubim with flaming swords shows this tragedy. First of all, I want you to recognize that the, the cherubim show up a couple other times in Scripture. Uh, they show up in the temple, and the tabernacle. There is the holy of holies, this great big curtain that, that blocks this room, that God is, is, is dwelling in. And in, uh, in, in Israel, there is a, uh, a, a, a sacrifice once a year, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest actually goes into the Holy of Holies to, to bring a sacrifice. But for all time, there is this curtain that stretches all the way down to the floor so that no one can see in and no one can get into the Holy of Holies. They cannot get into the presence of God's holiness. And on this uh, beautiful, tall, magisterial curtain are woven pictures of cherubim. Cherubim, just like we have here at the Garden of Eden. The, the cherubim are, uh, pres- represent or remind us or draw our attention to God's presence. If we are seeing cherubim, God is near. By the way, when I'm speaking of nearness and farness of God, we're speaking of him in a relational sense. He is omnipresent. He is all places at all times, but in a relational sense, that's the key. He's either in a relationship of love and grace or he is in a relation of judgment. And so the cherubim are protecting God's presence from being in the presence of sin. And we have the introduction of a flaming sword an instrument of war being used to keep out the man. The man whose original job was to guard and keep the Garden of Eden. Now a fearsome angel with a terrifying sword exists to guard the Garden of Eden from the one who had been created To live there. This is what sin has done. It has so separated man from holiness and from communion with God that he has to be kept out with a sword. We need to recognize that the number one scariest thing about sin is that it makes God our enemy. God hates sin. Psalm chapter uh, Psalm five verses four through six says this: For you are not a god who delights in wickedness; evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You see, sin prevents our return to God to be in His presence would be destruction. And so that is why, as you see at the top of your bulletin, we have uh, identified the image for this series as this chasm. This chasm that that uh, uh is is you know quite deep, our situation is illustrated by this chasm, both individually and corporately as 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 individuals and as as people of the human race, we all because of sin l- begin and live in a condition of of being far from God, away from God, and prevented to return to god, and one of the most heartbreaking uh, uh, themes in Genesis 4 through 11 is that there is no way to bridge that chasm within us. We will see that chasm only getting bigger and deeper as we go forward in the story of Cain and Abel, in the story of the flood, and finally in the story of Babel. God has a reason for showing us this repeatedly growing chasm and this increasing failure to to come across the chasm from our side. And that is this, and it is for us today, accept the chasm. Accept the chasm. You are in yourself because of sin far from God away from God and unable to return to God that is the reality of sin why would i put you put your face upon such a glum truth because beloved we must see our problem we must see it as it really is we must not pull any punches about the diagnosis because only when we see the problem can we see the solution, can we see where hope lies? And what hope is there? Well, there are three points. That was just point one. Point two, redemption begins with God's grace alone. Redemption begins with God's grace alone. We have a chasm. It separates us condemns us and the only thing that can possibly bring us back is a bridge bridges are an interesting engineering marvel bridges uh are, are, are fascinating uh, things to, to think about and to, and to um, understand all of the engineering that goes into them. Do you, do you know the, these big suspension bridges that go over great big chasms? Do you, do you know how they begin? They start with a single string, a single thread that is, that is taken to the other side of the chasm, Back uh, in, 18, in the 1800s, 1847, I never know how to do that, 1847, there was the, the great idea that we needed a bridge across the big Niagara chasm separating Canada and the United States. It's an 800-foot wide chasm. It is 200 feet deep. At the bottom of it are, are tr- uh, treacherous rapids that cannot be traversed. And yet, that was the most ideal space to build a bridge. And so they, the engineers set out to build a bridge across the Niagara chasm. But how are they going to get it started? There was this clever uh, d- uh, plan of a contest. They were going to get all the kids in the area to participate in a flight kind, uh, flight, a kite flying contest. Kids, bring out your little kite with a string on it, and the first kid who could fly his kite completely over the Niagara Gorge was going to win a $10 prize and start the bridge, basically. And so there was this, uh, this little kid, about 12, 14 years old. He took his kite, and he flew it, and he was able to get it all the way across the chasm, and it carried this thin little string with it. And once that little string was attached to the other side of the chasm, then you attach a slightly larger string and you pull that one across. And then you attach a slightly larger string and pull that one across. And then a rope. And then eventually you pull a cable across and you have begun a bridge. It is with a string that a bridge is begun. And as we look at this couple of verses at the close of the Garden of Eden. It is a string sent by God that is our only hope that crosses the chasm. We are going to see in this passage that there are three threads of God's grace that cross the chasm. It is these threads, these strings that will begin the bridge that will bring us back to God. Right here, God has already begun the bridge back. Let us look carefully at these threads. The first is the thread of preservation. The thread of preservation. That seems almost too obvious to to make note of, but I want you to think about this. Why does the Bible have a fourth page? Why do we continue to have a Bible? God's image bearer has rebelled. God's image bearer has become uh, unworthy and disqualified from, uh, from the presence of God. He has become a defiling force. Why is there a fourth page to the Bible? It is because at the moment of the fall, God's grace was preserving Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are not just destroyed at the moment because God meets them with grace. And what is grace? It's it's undeserved. What Adam and Eve deserved was death. What they received was instead life. Not life in the garden, but life outside of the garden still. He lets them live. He takes them out of the garden and puts them back to work the ground that they came from. They still have ground to work, still have ground to provide for themselves. This is what we call the doctrine of common grace. He has has provided for them, even though they are are outside of his uh, presence, he has still provided for them these common things to to live, and to to survive, and even to thrive. But more importantly, he prevented our complete destruction. Look at verse 22 again. Verse 22 can be a shocker. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What's, what's God doing there? Why can't we have the tree of, the, of life? Why can't, we, why can't we live? Is, is, is Satan right? Was, is, is, is God actually withholding? That was the whole argument that Satan had with Adam and Eve. God is obviously keeping you from the knowledge of, tree, uh, of good and evil because he doesn't want you to be like him. He's, he's withholding. He's being, he's being unfair and arbitrary. He's not got your good interests at heart. It's easy to read that verse and say, we could have had eternal life. We could have, we could have been spared. We could have been saved. All you had to do was let me get to the tree of life. Why, why is God withholding what we need? Well, I think we're reading the verse wrong if our thoughts go that direction. Because what is God actually doing? He is preserving us. You see, the tree of life was going to offer life that did not end. It was eternal life. Live forever is what we are told that it would be. If they ate of the tree of life, they would live forever. But if they ate of the tree of life and lived forever in the condition that they were in, which was sinful and separated from God's presence, then what would the tree of life actually done to them? It would have made their separation permanent. They would have been permanently in their sin. They would have been permanently consigned to separation. And so God, knowing that outcome, prevents them from taking the knowledge, the, the, the tree of life and eating of its fruit because he wants to preserve them. He wants to offer them someday a better hope And so he prevents their uh, taking of the tree of life. He prevents them from experiencing eternal separation. In a sense, right here in the garden, he is saving them from hell. Because eternal life without God is hell. And God is forbidding that from happening to his lost children. Matthews in his commentary says, uh, these words, that, that barring them from the tree of life was an assurance that their pitiful state is not consigned for eternity. And so we see the first thread is the thread of preservation, but we also then see right after this the thread of offspring. The thread of offspring. Even though that they, they are, are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the promise that they will be fruitful and multiply was not taken away. God uh, makes Eve the mother of all living. The mother of all living means that there is hope because there is an offspring that is promised and that has been protected. This offspring, this promise that Eve will be the mother of all living, is precious because it It means that God's word in Genesis 3.15, he intends to fulfill. What does God tell us in Genesis 3.15? He says that there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that there will come a point where the the seed of the serpent will strike at the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will strike the head of the serpent. We talked about this as as the first good news, the first telling of the gospel, that someday there would be a child born of the woman, born in the flesh, who would have a major battle between the force of evil, the forces of the serpent, and that in that great fight there would be a wound that the child would suffer, but that same wound would be the crushing of the head of the serpent. It is an image of the cross. Where Christ is wounded, but Satan is destroyed. And so, as we see at the close of Eden, Eve is called the mother of all living. That is a recognition that the promise of offspring stands. God's commitment to bring a Savior is coming to Reality. This is the promise. The promise of the offspring is the promise that drives the entire story of redemption. The entire uh, Old Testament is a record that contains the offspring from generation to generation to generation. If you turn to Luke chapter 3, you come to the genealogy of Jesus. And at one end of it is the son, is the son of Seth The son of Adam. And 77 generations later, we come to Jesus. It is an unbroken history of offspring, begetting offspring, begetting offspring. And that is the story of redemption. That is the story that God promised in in Genesis 3.15 and gave to Eve, calling her the mother of all living. That we are to hope in. The third thread that crosses the chasm at this early place is the thread of covering. The thread of covering. We recognize that Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were called naked and unashamed. Unashamed. They had a a, a a freedom, an innocence, a, a, a righteousness that kept them from needing to hide or cover anything. But the moment that they ate of the forbidden fruit, they were aware that they were naked. And they grabbed leaves and tried to stick them to their body and cover their, their nakedness out of shame. The first sensation of the fall was their shame. And I can imagine what they looked like when they were standing before God with these strange leaves that were doing only what leaves can do, barely anything, trying to cover their shame. And it it reminds us that we can't cover our shame. We can try and cover it, but it looks comical. And it doesn't actually take it away. But in the last scene here at Eden, verse 21, we are told this. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Before they left the garden, God took those stupid leaves off of them and gave them suitable skins to clothe them and to cover them before they left shows that God cared for them even as they rebelled. He cared for them physically. But we need to recognize that the main thing that clothing communicates in these first chapters is a spiritual problem. It is about shame. And God sends them out with a covering in response to their shame, a covering made of animal skins. We can't miss this. Their shame is given a covering, a temporary covering, but a covering nonetheless. And they are covered in animal skins, which means they live because life was taken. Here in this scene, there are two carcasses of slain animals that were sacrificed to give their skins to cover Adam and Eve. We see here the wages of sin is death. If they are not going to die, these animals had to die to cover them. And so here in the thread of covering, we have the first sign of what is called in, in uh, uh, different commentaries, the crimson thread. The, the red thread that begins at the end of the Garden of Eden and goes all the way to the cross. The thread of sacrifice covering and taking away sin. D.A. Carson says on this chapter these words, Here in Genesis 3, the death of an animal to cover the man and the woman is a picture of what is to come, the first step of an entire institution of sacrifices that points us finally to the supreme sacrifice and what Jesus did to take away our sin and cover our shame. As John the Baptist declared with great joy when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The covering of our shame and the taking away of our sin is here shown in shadow for us to hope in. Praise God. His sovereign, unstoppable grace crosses the chasm of our sin and separation. Our redemption begins with God's grace alone. How are we to respond to this? By faith. And that is why we conclude with our third point. Redemption begins with trusting God's word. This passage doesn't end with complete despair for Adam. It actually ends with hope for Adam. And why do we see hope for Adam? Because he responds to God's word with faith. How does he do that? Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He calls his wife's name Eve to remember she is the mother of all living. In calling his wife's name Eve, he is clinging to that word given in verse 15 that the offspring of the woman will be their savior. That is the good news in judgment that Adam heard, and he clung to it. He said, yes, I believe in that, and I am going to live out that belief by calling this woman Eve, the mother of all living. Adam's faith in naming his wife is demonstrated as faith in the one who is to come. And that is the exact same faith that we have. We have faith in the one who has come, the Savior, the snake crusher, Jesus Christ. This is marvelous. Here in Genesis 3, at the very dawn of redemption, we see the same gospel. We have always been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Beloved, this is a call for us to trust in God's word. Fill your heart with his promises. Trust in them. Are you trusting in the gospel? Redemption has begun and it has come to us. Today is grace. Today is a day you have been preserved. Today is a day where God's mercies are new and shining. Today is a day where the gospel is being proclaimed, where the hope is being shown forth, where the bridge is being demonstrated to you. Today is a day given to you for repentance. Today is a day given to you for trust. Today is a day given to you for belief. Today is a day given to you to grow in your confidence and assurance of the gospel. Today is a precious day. It is part of the story of redemption. As Psalm 95.7 declares, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden yourself as in the rebellion. Are you responding to the hope given, to the one hope that is the answer to your sin and all its separation? Have you fixed your hope on Christ alone to save you and bring you back to God? Amen.